on your father, you took it on your brother, and you took it on your sister, you took it on that one, and you took it on me. Bad boys, bad boys, what you gonna do? What you gonna do when they come for you? Bad boys, bad boys, what you gonna do? What you gonna do when they come for you? And we're back. This is Dump on the Ump. Ostensibly a baseball podcast, season five, week thirty-three, episode B. This is the B block, the B block book club. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Joel. With me tonight is Sam. Sam, how's it going? Uh, it's going pretty well. I'm coming at you live from Southampton, New York. Um, yeah, that's yeah, it. like that. Yeah. Um, Okay, so we posted a few days ago the first part of our book club on The Catcher Was a Spy, The Mysterious Life of Mo Berg. So check out that episode if you have the time. Sam has read this book, and so he's going to share the next saga of Mo Berg's. Now, we got him through mostly his baseball career in the 1920s and 1930s. And now it's my understanding that we're going to see him transition into the next part of his career as World War II approaches. Right. So, uh, is that my cue? Go for it. Nice. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so, Boberg, uh, you know, he kind of saw the rise of fascism across the world. And he was a huge patriot. He like loved America very much. And so when uh, he, I think at the end of last episode, we talked about how he had transitioned from player to coach on the Red Sox. Right, but he didn't didn't like that job. He didn't care for it very much, right. So when the war started and he, uh, you know, felt like he had something to give to his country and he didn't really like his current job very much. So he, um, he moved to water. He went down to Washington and he applied for a job uh, with the fledgling OSS. And he was kind of a perfect fit for the OSS because uh, the OSS stands for office of strategic services, right? Is that? That's correct. Is that right? And it's the precursor to the modern day CIA. So the CIA came out of the uh, out of um, the OSS, similar to how the war on drugs came out of prohibition. Um, <clears throat> Interesting analogy. Yeah. Well, I think that it, <laughs> you know, neither are very effective. Whatever. I think it's gotcha. A, I yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. <laughs> Um, so the OSS was, uh, run, was, was kind of thrown together. It was like thrown together, uh, because it was wartime and the U S had no, um, no intelligence service. And so much of this war, world war two was like on the cutting edge of like espionage and like code breaking technology. Right. Um, And so, there was, and it was also a war that was being fought on many fronts uh, across Europe and in the East, and um, and so it was like very important. Often, whoever could figure out what the other person was doing first would 
end up winning, right? So um, the government threw together the OSS um, and first actually, uh, one of, who was it? One of the Rockefellers put together an office. It was a propaganda office that was based, uh, that was focused on keeping Mexico from joining the Nazis because okay. Hitler was like wooing Mexico and other Central and South American countries really hard uh, because of their strategic location near the United States. Um, and this was even before the U.S. had, and this is before Pearl Harbor and the U.S. had entered the war. Uh, and the thought being that if, you know, Hitler could uh, make some moves and uh, get some people, some of these countries to side with the fascists, then the United States would be like too concerned with what was going on in their southern border to actually enter the war in Europe. Okay. So one of the Rockefellers was like really uh, worried about this and the and was went to the government and was like, hey, I want to start this like bureau that is dealing with like propaganda in Central and South America that's like going to keep them from joining the Nazis. And the government was like, okay, Rockefeller, like you have endless your own money. You want to do it. That's fine. We, you know, sure. we'll coordinate with you. And so first Moberg got a job with them and his job basically, because uh, he spoke a little Spanish, was to go through Mexico. And I think he went to Guatemala and maybe into Brazil, maybe. Uh, but he was just like visiting the troops as kind of a, almost like a USO sort of, you know, professional ball player uh -huh. um, traveling around. And his job was to like assess conditions and morale and like report back to Rockefeller uh, about how the things were. So he kind of like, <clears throat> you know, he went to one army base in Mexico and then he like wrote a letter and got them like baseball gear to like play huh. ball there. And like um, to also to like play, like teach the, you know, Mexicans baseball. It's like one of his things was like, oh, we just teach everyone baseball and they'll right. love Gee, America. What's the raise morale. Get right. these boys on the baseball diamond. <laughs> right, exactly. Which, you know, is probably not untrue. Right. Um, I love America. You love America. I love right. baseball. You love baseball. Uh, and when he was down there, he was just kind of like always like interested. He was kind of a mover. He was like interested in like meeting new people and kind of changing his situation uh, because he didn't really want – he wanted to be involved in the war effort. He didn't really feel like – what he felt like what he was doing was like valuable, but not as valuable as it could be, I guess. So he was kind of a like celebrity slash bureaucrat. Right. Yeah, exactly. He was like a bureaucrat, but he had some like celebrity clout about him uh -huh. as well, uh -huh. which is how he landed the job in the first place is because he was kind of a famous person right. for being this like like ball player slash linguist slash genius you know yeah and we talked a lot about that in part one which i thought was really fascinating his whole yeah. persona as the professor right while he played baseball that was very right. i got a question and sure. i don't know if there's a good answer for this how did he develop his you said he was very patriotic right 
How did he develop that sense of patriotism? Because I got the sense that he spent so much of his childhood as an outsider and also being Jewish and experiencing anti-Semitism and yet still becoming a patriotic American. Right. Well, I forget where his family came from. I probably can find that out real quick. But basically, like, his parents immigrated, and his father hated where they came from. Okay. They were, like, in a very Orthodox Jewish, um, like, household. Uh And they were just, like, what's the word? He just, he like banned Yiddish from being spoken in his house and he like Uh, hated where they came from and loved America for like what it represented as the land of opportunity and freedom. So I imagine that probably, they don't really talk about it, but like Berg loved baseball and he loved uh, America and his dad loved America. So it probably just all came from that. You know? And when they, I mean, he grew up in New Jersey. And so when they moved here, or when his parents moved here, they dropped all those cultural trappings of, I assume, Eastern European Jewishness. Right. They, yeah, they exactly. became American. They, they, right. they Americanized he, hard. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. That yeah. makes sense. And also, like Berg loved being an outsider. It wasn't uh-huh. like it was like it wasn't like he was trying to fit in and just couldn't because he was Jewish or whatever. It's like he really loved the the like the limbo that he like put himself in. You know, that's interesting, huh? Where he could like be very friendly with people without becoming close to them. You know, strange. Yeah. Because uh, a lot of this book is about how he's, the people are like, yeah, we were friends. I didn't really know him very well. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so he is in Central America, South America, the Caribbean right. also, I think, doing work yeah. for Rockefeller, trying to stave off any kind of Nazi influence in the right. Egypt. Okay, and then and but then he's not really excited about this job, so he gets reassigned. How does that happen? I can't remember. He meets he, somebody, gets a letter of recommendation, I think, right? Okay, because it says here that he he goes to work in. Uh, it says here in September he was assigned to the OSS secret intelligence branch and given a spot on the OSS Balkans desk, monitoring right. the situation in Yugoslavia. Right, so he met somebody. What through his work with Rockefeller, he uh, got linked up with the OSS um, because the two uh, bureaus were working together okay. uh, on a on a number of projects. And the OSS, the brand new OSS, was like thrown together, uh, and the director of the OSS really. <clears throat> you know, it's not like they really Nelson had- Rockefeller. Sorry, Nelson Rockefeller. Just figured yeah. that out. Nelson Rockefeller, right. And the director of the OSS, who, maybe you can look up who that was too, I can't remember, Donovan maybe? Uh, Um, He really, like he didn't really have, it wasn't like training protocol, there was no protocol for everything. And they were like, the government was like, here is 
an endless amount of money create a spy network. And there, there are like no spies, American spies already. You know, they're like nobody. And so he, he really was uh, interested in recruiting people who were um, kind of crazy, I guess. Interesting. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, like, do you remember the? You ever watch that show, The Venture Brothers, the cartoon? No. Oh, okay. Sorry. The OSS plays a part in that. And I get like a real strong vibe that the guy, the OSS guy is like pretty accurate to what this guy is. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Venture Brothers. Check it out. Um, so anyway, uh, and, you know, Mo Berg was, a, was like the cut of the, the exact cut that this guy was looking for in an OSS uh, employee. So he gets the job on the Balkans desk and basically all that happens is like reports come in, he reads them and like decides whether or not they're like important and then sends them off to the proper branches or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. he hates it. Uh-huh. Um, and, he doesn't want a desk job. Right. Is that accurate? Yeah. He doesn't want a desk job. He doesn't really thrive in that sort of environment. Um, which is weird. Okay, so here's my question about that. Because if he's got this, oh, I'm the professor, I speak all these languages, I read a dozen newspapers a day. Right. If I knew that about him, I might put him in a desk job and be like, okay, read every newspaper in every language and tell me what's going on. But that right. wasn't his, his bag. That wasn't what he got excited about. Well, I don't think that he... Uh that's what he did okay i think that he um i think that he read reports you know it wasn't that he was like just reading newspapers from yugoslavia he was like Uh reading reports and deciding whether or not they were important and he was like really not necessarily interested in reading about what other people were doing he wanted to be the one doing it okay you see what I'm saying? I think so. I want to see what happens to him next. He right. wants to be in the action. He wants to be maybe in a mystery novel. Right. Uh, well, he always kind of saw himself as this, like, man of the world traveling about and, like, right. collecting information um, uh, for, you know, not even for the government. Like, when he was traveling for baseball and on his own before, he was... So with taking pictures and taking video and like taking copious notes and like in meeting interesting people and he felt like he had a lot to uh to 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 give and when he like joined the OSS like part of the things that he did is he had I mentioned I think before how he went up to the top of that tall building yeah. in Japan and, and videotaped the harbor and like that was a thing like he had this videotape of the Tokyo harbor and the people were like, this is great footage. We don't have a lot of footage or like like images of this harbor. So like that was like a thing that immediately gave him value to uh, the OSS. Yeah, that, uh, yeah, we talked about that last week. That's very cool. I'm still amazed that they just let this dude do that. But <laughs> no. Right. Uh, <laughs> there wasn't well, a another part of my book. 
another part of my book that I'm in now, because I'm past the war part now into the post-war part where he did a lot of traveling. But one of the parts of the book is that he was uh, he's with he stays with this one family and they like the author of the book interviews uh, the daughter of that family uh-huh. about about her memories. And uh, <clears throat> he and she was like. You know, he used to, he'd always tell stories about Japan, and he always insisted that, like, when he was there, people couldn't tell him apart from the Japanese people. But, you know, he was six foot two and very much a white man. Like, yes, exactly. So he's, like, kind of delusional, I think, about his own, like, ability to. <laughs> no, um, I just blended. <sighs> you do not see me. <laughs> Okay, so okay, so he's at this desk. He's reading these reports. He seems kind of bored. How does he get out right. of this situation? Says he. Well, he gets assigned to this project. Yeah, I hear you. He becomes somehow involved. Can you hear me? Yep, I do. Uh, he becomes somehow involved in uh, the. Uh, Project AZUSA. Uh-huh. I don't know what it stands for. But basically, his job overseas, because he did get sent overseas, and his job was basically to find out if the Nazis were building an atomic bomb. Okay. And that job for him started in Italy, uh, where he went and started interviewing all of these physicists um, in er- this one physicist in particular. Um, what the fuck was that guy's name? There's two here. Von uh, Sacker. It's either Werner Heisenberg, who people know Werner no, Heisenberg. he's the German guy. And he's the other Italian guy, guy. Oh, it's an Italian guy. Because the other one is Karl Friedrich von Weizsacker. Okay, but he's interviewing Italian yeah, I- Right, so he goes to Italy first, right? And so uh-huh. he's in Italy, uh, and he kind of, no, sorry, first he goes to London, then he goes to Paris, and then he goes to Italy, but he's supposed to be in Algeria. He goes to Algeria for a little while, but uh-huh. here's like a thing that's like uh, becomes a trademark for his intelligence work is, you know, we didn't have like cell phones back then or anything, and he would just like disappear off the face for long periods of time and show up <laughs> in places where, where he wasn't necessarily supposed to be. <laughs> and so he goes to Italy, but here's the thing about nuclear physics in the 1940s during world war two. It's like the community of people who know anything about it is very small. Right. Okay. There's like, you know, maybe like, or five scientists per country that work on that sort of stuff, you know? Sure, sure. And so his job initially was to, or like the stated job uh, of the mission was for him to go and recruit, which meant either to coerce or kidnap uh, European physicists to come and work for the United States, building the United States bomb. Sure. Um, and but the like secret and that was like the 
the major pro project that he was involved in. But his part of it actually was to go in with this group of recruiters or whatnot and actually interview these physicists to try to figure out what they knew about the Germans' nuclear program. Okay. Specifically, which was headed by this physicist, German physicist Heisenberg. Okay. Um, and so uh, it's a very interesting. It's it's interesting because he was really good at this because he was very personable. People like were drawn to him. He was pretty intelligent, um, and he like learned a lot about physics. So he was like able to talk to these people kind of in their own Yeah. And he's um, okay. He very like, successful. Like this is a this is a part that the movie misses. It's like okay. he was actually an amazing spy um at his stated job. Which was basically finding finding out that the Germans were not building a nuclear bomb. I didn't know that Werner. Yeah, no, I just I didn't know that Heisenberg was a principal scientist in the Nazi German nuclear weapon project, huh? That kind you know of what? oh, I didn't know that Heisenberg worked so no, closely he... with the Nazis. That kind of bums me out. Heisenberg was a Nazi, and he Heisenberg was, was a Nazi. He was the head of the nuclear. Well, he was the head of the nuclear, like, department of the Nazis. Uh-huh. Yeah. He was, like, the head physicist of the Nazi, like, for the Nazi party. Oh. That's a bummer. Why, are you a big Heisenberg fan? I guess I'm not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I knew he was at that time. I had no idea that he actually worked, that he actually was. Yeah, because he won the 1932 Nobel Prize in physics for the creation of quantum mechanics. Bummer, dude. Right. Well, but, I mean, it might not be. He never built the a Nazis a bomb, you know? Right. But it seems like he was in head of, ahead of that program. Um, I'm actually uh, – there's a podcast going on right now. It's called Moonrise. Hold on. Excuse me. That I would recommend uh -huh. anyone who's interested in these kind of stories. It's actually it's it's ostensibly about the uh, space race between the United States and the Soviet Union, but most of the first half is talking about this story, World War Two, and the U.S. trying to figure out what the Nazis are up to in World War Two in terms of their technology. And the race for the atomic bomb, and it talks about a lot about um, and now what's his name? Werner von um, Werner von Braun, yeah, Werner von Braun, Draken or whatever. The guy that uh, Doctor von no von Braun who. Developed the V2 rockets, the the beginning of the ICBMs. Basically, the idea is that whereas the United States was putting most of its uh, capital behind developing nuclear weapons, 
the Nazis were developing ICBMs and rocket technology to fire rockets at London in the V1, V2 rockets. And then Werner von Braun. I bring it up because von Braun, he was a Nazi. And then after World War II, he did come to the United States and became the lead of NASA's moon project. Oh, right. And he, was he an Italian guy? No, he was a German. And he was a, uh enthusiastic Nazi. Right. Yeah. Classic. So, cla- yeah, classic. And, and you know, Dr. Strangelove is based on him. The movie? I didn't know. Yeah. Okay, so let's get back to the topic at hand. Moberg. So, he's going, so is he going to, like, lectures or conferences? Right now. Oh, he's go he goes into Italy and starts interviewing these Italian physicists. And one of them tells him that the German physicist Heisenberg is uh, is going to be at this he's going to be speaking at this conference in Zurich. Um, and he is going to <clears throat> It's going to be in Switzerland, and so Moberg goes to Switzerland, and they he has a connection there. Uh, the head of the physics department at MIT had a colleague in Zurich who he gave him a letter of introduction to, um, and so he goes to Zurich and makes contact with this guy uh, whose name is uh, I'll get your get you his name. Swiss Swiss physicist Paul Scheele. Anyway, yeah, sure. Scheele, Paul Scheele, yeah. So anyway, he goes there. This guy sure loves Berg. They become like besties. Um. Do they and play baseball? Sure gets Berg into the conference. Berg goes to a uh, lecture. What? Do they play baseball together? No, but Sure is obsessed with America. He's like obsessed okay. with everything American. Cool. Uh. So they go into this lecture. So Heisenberg. Anyway, he loves Moberg. He gets Moberg. What? Keep. I'm sorry. I will stop interrupting you. Tell the story. Uh, He gets he gets Moberg into a Heisenberg lecture, uh, which Berg attends, and then so Moberg's like mission is to make contact with Heisenberg, find out whether or not they're working on a bomb in Nazi Germany. And if they are, Moberg is supposed to kill him. So it's like an assassination, potentially assassination mission. Right. Um, And so Moberg goes to the lecture. This guy, sure, 
hosts a dinner party at his home that Heisenberg attends and also Mo Berg attends. And, uh, you know, Heisenberg at this point, this is kind of important. Heisenberg doesn't have uh, SS detail like with him. Uh Um, I think he has like one like SS officer, I think who's there basically to keep him from defecting, but Uh it's not like he has a bodyguard. Um, And also like through the lecture and through, and because of that, and because at the end of the dinner party, Yep, keep going. The fuck? I'm here. At the end of the dinner party, (laughs) at the end of the dinner party, he, like, Heisenberg leaves alone, and Moberg runs out after him, Uh and they walk together and talk for a long time. And Heisenberg remembers Moberg as, like, this annoying... Uh, Swiss guy who keeps asking him all these questions because they're speaking uh-huh. in German. Okay. And apparently Moberg's German, Swiss German, was good enough to fool Heisenberg. Into thinking he's Swiss. Into thinking that Into he's Swiss. Swiss, right? Yeah. yeah. So he just remembers him as this Swiss guy who's asking way too many fucking questions, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, and, and they're alone. So if Moberg was going to kill Heisenberg, this would be the moment. Moberg decides that he, the Germans are not developing a nuclear bomb, doesn't kill Heisenberg. Um, and then that's his like report. So, and this is kind of like the culmination of his, this is like the most exciting part yeah. of his intelligence career is this moment. And this is also kind of the focus of the movie. Um, and so anyway, he doesn't kill him. Uh, and he decides the Germans are making the bomb. He makes this, he makes that, you know, writes his report and sends it back. And it's like, they're not making a bomb. And that's like, not good enough for the Americans. Cause the, the Americans are like building their bomb and they're like aware of how ter- terrible it can be. Right. And so they're terrified that the Nazis are also, um, building a bomb. And Heisenberg is the number one physicist in the world at the time. So they're afraid that the Nazis might be ahead of the Americans building right. this bomb. Um, so anyway, so basically for the rest of the war, Moberg stays in Switzerland with this guy, Sure, And they're like pals. Um, and they just kind of live. He goes on vacation with this guy and his family, and he's they just hang out all the time. They like, you know, are they just chat and ride bikes? And then like, this guy is also corresponding with all of these other physicists around Europe because that's what they do because it's such a small community. Uh-huh. And sharing all of these letters with Mo Berg, who's then sharing them with the OSS. Oh. And it's just like. An, extremely successful and sure knows this he's not okay you know he's aware of who moberg is and what he's doing and he's doing this with uh you know his angle was that once the war is over he would get a teaching position at caltech or mit or something like that right um 
And so, because he's so into America. So, anyway, uh, for the, the rest of the war, you know, Moberg goes down in OSS history as one of the most effective operatives in the entire OSS. So, so uh, my question is, was he right about Heisenberg and the Nazis not being close to developing a bomb? Yeah. The, it's possible that the Nazis weren't even trying to develop a bomb. Okay. Like, they didn't, they didn't, like, when the war was over, when they went through Germany and, and like, raided all of their physics labs and, like, uh, you know, munitions factories and whatever, they found not enough enriched uranium to make it, like, not even close to the amount needed. Um, and then also, like, dirty water or heavy water is another thing that you need. Um, uh-huh. And they they didn't have that. Um but basically, they were terrified that the Nazis were building the bombs because the Nazis, like, strategically took over, like, the only uranium mine in Europe, and, uh, which is in, like, Yugoslavia or something like that. They were, like, it, there was reason to believe that they were pursuing a nuclear bomb, but they weren't. Or, like, they'd never, like... There are people who think that Heisenberg was like intentionally foiling the plot to like make a nuclear bomb uh-huh. uh, because he was like not a Nazi sympathizer, but whatever. Um, yeah, so Moberg was right. Okay. Uh, and kind of, uh, and you know, was kind of a hero in the OSS. Yeah. Because of this incredible intelligence work. Cool. Yeah. I don't know. I just like the idea of him going from country to country and bringing people world peace by teaching them how to play baseball. Yeah. (laughs) Right. But he didn't like that so much. Like, he was less into that. Right. That's what I would have done. Also, like, could Heisenberg pitch? Who knows? Right. These are the questions yeah. that we need to answer. Right. 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 So, okay. So, but Moberg really loved this work. He did. Right. Because he was, like, traveling around Europe, interacting with some of the greatest minds in the world of that era, um, working for his country and being fucking total lunatic, like, secretive nut job. Which all, like, all of these things fit in to a T, the things that he, like, saw for himself and, like, desired in other people. Interesting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And he kind of got to live, like, a cushy life in Switzerland, too. Right. Well, that was one of his, uh... (laughs) He, like, always lived an incredibly cushy life. And that was, like... He didn't get paid a lot of money by the OSS, but he had an exp- he had expenses, and he would just everywhere he went, he would live in the fanciest hotel <laughs> and just rack up these huge bills, huge huge bills, and then just like leave the government to pay them. And that was like one of his one of the reasons that they didn't much care for. Like that was one of the sticking points in his career. <laughs> 
That's funny. <laughs> Good for him. All right. So we have enough material then for the third episode of right. Robo. So yeah. post-World War II career of Robo. Right. Sweet. Or lack thereof. Or lack, yeah, lack thereof. What happens to the weirdo when he can't play baseball or be a spy for the U.S. government anymore? Right. He mooches off of his family. Right. And friends. And friends. All right. Yeah, cool. All right. <clears throat> Thanks so much, Sam. Um, so the book is The Catcher Was a Spy. The author, author is Nicholas Dawidoff, D-A-W-I-D-O-F-F. Um, there's also a movie starring um, Paul Rudd, but he doesn't look like Milberg at all. Right, it's not a very good movie. Either. It's not a very good movie, yeah. So we do not recommend the movie, but the book, the book is good. Check it out. All right, like, hey. Paul Rudd is just not weird enough. Wait, he's a he's Ant Man, and and the right. so many. He's been like the handsome, charming guy in so many fucking movies. He's like America's sweetheart, you know what yeah, I mean? Exactly. <laughs> and they're like, oh, or he's like, oh, let me play this like tall, dark weirdo <laughs> who likes reading right. newspapers. Right. Nobody believes that Paul Rudd is a professional baseball player. Like no. that's not. No. Maybe Mike. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much for listening. This has been Dump on the Yump, ostensibly a baseball podcast, sometimes a baseball podcast about uh, nuclear physics and Nazis. Um, Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Check us out on all your social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Also, listen to us on Apple iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. If you do, please subscribe to us. Give us a rating and a review. We'll see you next week for the conclusion of The Catcher Was a Spy. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. Have a good evening and a pleasant tomorrow. Boys, bad boys,